In 2006, major astronomy news broke beyond the scientific community when everyone had an opinion about the status of Pluto. What? You mean there are only eight planets in the solar system now? Yep, Pluto had been designated a dwarf planet. Well, what's the current status of Pluto? How do we define what it is and where it fits into our solar system? I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, and on this Learning Together podcast, we'll get into that and more. Every Learning Together podcast features faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who have established themselves as experts in their fields, and they're designed especially for alumni as part of the university's lifelong learning initiative. Today, you'll enjoy a conversation on what's up with Pluto's planet status. Our featured guests are Dr. David Wood, class of 93, and Dr. Nisha Turner. A lot of the physical characteristics that we would associate with a planet, Pluto certainly seems to have those. Well, I was thinking I might divulge a little trade secret to our listeners. Both of whom teach astronomy courses at Trinity University. Their conversation will cover many interesting aspects surrounding Pluto, including the dynamic definition of a planet versus geophysical definitions, and what Pluto really resembles. This conversation will not only satisfy your curiosity about Pluto, but it'll whet your appetite for learning more about the whole planetary solar system. So good afternoon. Um, David, it's great to see you. Um, and you as well. You know, it's been a real pleasure working with you when you come in and teach for us at Trinity, uh, teaching our astronomy lab, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Well, I am too, and I have a great time. We have great students here, and uh, I hope our alumni are going to enjoy our conversation. <laughs> well, I thought we'd start with something that everybody agrees on about Pluto, right? Okay. I thought we'd start up with just talking about, well, we the consensus seems to be we don't have exactly nine planets anymore. That seems to be the basic consensus. So some people would argue we have eight. Some people would argue we have 100. Some people might argue we'll pick up a ninth at some point. But we all agree we don't have nine today. That's correct. Although I think nine sometimes is a magic number. That's why folks are out there looking for one. Uh, but correct, as of today, we have eight planets or we have a whole bunch more, hundreds, maybe thousands, uh, depending upon how you classify it. Sure. So I thought we might start with a little history, um, let people know a little bit of how Pluto was discovered and why we considered it a planet in the first place. Sure. So the story starts back around 1927 or so when a young man named Clyde Tombaugh was hired at Lowell Observatory primarily to keep the search for a putative ninth planet going. And he was a very hard worker, and he would continue to take pictures of the sky during the nighttime, and then during the day, he'd put them on a very large device, a light table, if you will, and he would slide back and forth between these two panes, looking for just a little point of light that was moving. And in January of 1930, he spotted a little point of light that moved. And by early February, it was confirmed this was an object in our solar system. And he had the outer solar system all to himself. It was the first object discovered way out there beyond Neptune. Part of the uh, reason then that Pluto uh, gained so much notoriety is that it was the newest one. It was quite a bit unknown for several decades, much more about it. Uh, and then Walt Disney created a cartoon character that really helped cement Pluto into the minds and hearts of the American children. 
So we didn't know much more about Pluto until 1979 when James Christie discovered a little bump off of the side of Pluto that we later discovered turned out to be a companion, Sharon. Uh, And then around the 1990s, we started getting a little bit better technology. We started getting computers. Um, Computers started being able to do these searches better than we could. And we started finding lots of little points of light moving around out in the general vicinity of Pluto. And around 2003, one of those points of light was identified that was about the same size as Pluto, maybe a smidge bigger, maybe a smidge smaller, but it was about Pluto size. And so that kind of led to a discussion. What do we really have out in the outer solar system? So for 60 plus years, Pluto had no competition in the outer solar system. It owned it. That's right. No competition at all. I mean, long before I was an astronomer, I could have told you all the planets, right? We knew all of them. So, and we even had a sentence for it, right? My very educated mother just sent us nine <laughs> postcards, right? That's right. And and then all of a sudden, we started, well, well there's more stuff out there. We're going to have to have a longer sentence. Yep. And so, the, it really became a, a big question. What do we have? And um, it had been postulated in late 1940s that there might be a vast reservoir of icy objects way out beyond Neptune. And that Pluto might just be one of many things. But we didn't know that for sure until the late 90s. And then by the early 2000s, we started finding competition, real competition for Pluto. Objects that were as big and possibly bigger. And that really translated into an identity crisis. Because believe it or not, there actually was not a formal definition for a planet (laughs) until the International Astronomical Union attempted to create one around 2006. Sure. Well, when we try to define these things, one thing I think we need to step back and think about is what is the essence of a planet? What do we mean when we say planet? What does planethood mean in the mind of a planetary scientist? And you and I are both planetary scientists. You know, what does that that essence of planethood mean that we're looking for when we create these scientific definitions to help guide our inquiry? Sure. So when the word planet was first used, the word planet comes from the Greek and it means a wanderer in the sky. So the sun was originally a planet. The moon was originally a planet and earth actually was not. And then once we realized that, okay, we kind of had things backwards. The sun was more at the center earth, kind of circled the sun, uh, we sort of arbitrarily redefined what a planet was. It's sort of a big major object that circled the sun. And then we discovered asteroids and the term minor planet came into use in the 19th century. And when astronomers realized the asteroids were really small and there were a whole bunch of them, they just sort of quietly discontinued uh, the use of the word planet the large number of asteroids. Then Pluto came along and having the whole outer solar system to itself for 60 years, nobody really questioned, well, this is definitely a major object. And then that crisis hit. And so now we kind of had to really start thinking about what is meant to be a planet. Is it just the object's ability to kind of own its own space? Or is it the 
innate characteristics that the object has. Um, Pluto, especially after 2015, when the New Horizons probe got there, uh, has some amazing structures, things that we would definitely associate with the planet. It's got mountains. It's got enormous uh, ridges and cracks. It's got plains. Uh, it may even have a little bit of liquid underneath its surface. So a lot of the physical characteristics that we would associate with the planet, Pluto certainly seems to have those. Well, I was thinking I might divulge a little trade secret to our listeners that uh, in planetary science conferences and planetary science circles, we kind of call a lot of things planets that really aren't planets by this definition. We call moons planets. We call our moon a planet, right? That is absolutely right. In fact, I have to catch myself sometimes or, or more often than not, a student catches me in class when I talk about the uh, moons of the outer solar system. And then I say planets like Europa or Io or Ganymede, mm -hmm. and I get a hand up. Um isn't that really a moon? Right. So we actually have this term planet that we really don't define very well. Um, and we just kind of arbitrarily call a big object with lots of features and lots of structure a planet. Especially if it has a place we can land. Absolutely. If we like uh, those well, especially. And, and we have four big ones that don't have solid surfaces right. that nobody questions. Well, those are planets. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that we really understand what the word planet means. And I kind of like the word world now because that's a little more all-encompassing. It gets a little bit away from the controversy of what do we mean by a planet. Um, when I actually walk my students through the objects of the solar system in order of size, and I start with the sun, and I actually hit a couple of moons before I hit Mercury. So are those moons planets? If we're just talking about a pure size definition, they would certainly seem to qualify before Mercury does. But if you've got to be primarily orbiting the sun rather than something else, well, Mercury's got a leg up on them. So, yeah, how we define a planet, I think, is still very much in doubt. Yeah, I think it is. I think that's something that people maybe don't realize. Like it, it seemed like from the national press that sort of the, the International Astronomical Union kind of swooped in and redefined planet and the debate was settled, but it was actually a little more interesting than that. Oh, it's definitely a lot more nuanced than that. Um, part of the issue I think that a lot of people had was Pluto was special to Americans because it was the first planet discovered by an American. Um, it was kind of our claim to fame in the solar system. And it, in some ways it kind of felt like we were being cut out of that. Um, I think sometimes there's also a lot of emotion that's invested in a category or a definition. And so folks sometimes want to say Pluto's a planet because it's always been, and they've invested so much in this little guy out in the outer solar system. I don't know what a good category is, but um, I will tell you, I was not happy with the International Astronomical Union in creating this dwarf planet category that they dropped Pluto into. Um, in fact, uh, one of the interesting facts of that 2006 International Astronomical Union meeting is that they started with a preliminary definition of what was a planet, and it included two of the three components they settled on, but it made Pluto 
it kept Pluto a planet, but it made Ceres the largest asteroid a planet, and it made Pluto's competition, Eris, a planet, but it also made Pluto's companion, Charon, a planet. So for six days, we had 12 planets officially in the solar system. And when they finally decided and voted and added that third criterion that demoted all four of those things, three of them got put into the dwarf planet category, Pluto, Eris, and Ceres. But I've always become a big Sharon advocate since then, because if it was good enough to be a planet for six days, why wasn't it good enough to get the dwarf planet status? And especially when some other things out there have been called dwarf planets, like uh, the, there's this egg-shaped rock called Haumea that is out there that's one of the five dwarf planets. And there's nothing round really about it. It's an egg. It's egg-shaped. And we've got some round things, more round things even in the asteroid belt that don't get that dwarf planet status. And there is poor Sharon sitting out there uh, that I think a lot of injustice has been done to it by just creating arbitrarily this dwarf planet category. Well, you know, I always tell my students, nature laughs at our need to classify things, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's really, really hard to do. And one of the things we found with the IAU was that they brought in a lot. Well, of course, the International Astronomical Union is a meeting not typically populated by planetary scientists, right? Right. So a lot right. of people who study stars and galaxies and may not have quite the same specific expertise in the in the subfield of planetary science. And they and it got quite contentious, right? It got very contentious. And one of the things that they had to do was bring in a very a world-renowned, incredibly respected astronomer, Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Uh, she's the woman who famously discovered pulsars. And because of her discovery of pulsars, her male advisor and two of his male colleagues got a Nobel Prize for her discovery. And so she has tremendous respect in the community because she's, you know, the discoverer of pulsars. But she also did not really care whether Pluto was a planet or not. So she was the perfect person to bring in to kind of settle everybody down, calm everyone's feelings, and tell everybody that they only could make an elevator pitch. They weren't going to get up and speechify at the at the meeting. They weren't going to get up and give long screeds. And, and she was the person who had kind of the gravitas to pull that off. But people really, really respected her. And the, the fact that that was necessary, I think, should communicate that how contentious this issue really was, even among the people at the IAU. Yeah, it was contentious. It was emotional. And you wouldn't think from uh, your just generic picture of scientists that if your idea is that they're rational and logical, you know what? We're human, too. And we had a lot invested in that. And uh, yeah, there were a lot of hurt feelings by this particular meeting. And uh, Jocelyn Bell was uh, just, you're absolutely right, the perfect person to come in. Um, and she should have gotten a Nobel Prize, by the way. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to the conversation with professors Wood and Turner. So, so our, let, let's back up though just to be able to speak about this for our listeners. Is what are the criteria that the IAU actually settled on? So the the first one is 
It orbits the sun. Correct. So there are three criteria that the International Astronomical Union ultimately decided characterized a planet. The first criterion is that the object orbits the sun directly. The second criterion is that it is big enough to be round. And the third criterion is that it has cleared the neighborhood of its orbit. And the problem with those three criteria is that all of them are ill-defined. So that would make every planet outside of our solar system not a planet, according to this definition, because the sun is explicitly listed in the first criterion. The second criterion, what does it mean to be big enough to be round? Because there's not a perfectly round planet anywhere in the solar system. Jupiter is actually pretty squat if you uh, go and do some measurements of it. So define what round is. And the third problem, the clearing the neighborhood of its orbit problem, is a real thorny issue. Several people have tried to come up with a way to define this, to clear, uh, define what clearing the neighborhood means. And some of the best ways to do it would make planets like Earth, which can clear a small neighborhood around the sun, a planet. But if you move that same object way out to where Pluto is or beyond, Earth couldn't clear its orbit out then. There's not enough time for it to get rid of all of that little debris that would be there. So there are problems with all three criteria. So that brings us to the idea of this the dynamic definition of a planet versus a geophysical definition of a planet. I think when a lot of people, lay people and planetary scientists included, I think, when, they, when we picture a planet, we picture kind of an object with processes and, and you know geophysics going on, I suppose, in a way that, uh, and we don't necessarily think about well, is there any debris around it in space? You know, has it cleared its orbit? That doesn't seem to be the the top on the list. It almost feels, I think it felt to some people as maybe a little contrived to find a way to exclude uh, certain minor objects in the in the solar system. Yeah, it, it provides a real easy demarcation between what a planet is and what it isn't, if that's what you're looking for. Because anything that is going to dominate its orbit is going to be by far and away more massive than everything else put together. And all of the eight planets fit that criteria. Then if you look at everything else in the solar system, nothing it clears its orbit well enough. It is maybe may the largest object in the zone, but if you take all the other stuff, it'll be, there's other stuff that'll be a lot bigger than that. Earth is kind of the cutoff because our moon is pretty big relative to Earth's size and Earth's mass. So our moon is more than 1% the size of Earth, but it's still only about one and some change percent. The next object that you kind of find on that list would be Pluto, and there are many objects as big as Pluto or beyond uh, out in the Kuiper belt, out in the outer solar system. And so it makes a nice clean demarcation, but what does that have to do with being a planet? And that's really the question. Sure. And, and does it, I guess, do you find it appropriate? You've mentioned before that, that if we took Earth and we took it out to Pluto's orbit, that it wouldn't be able to clear its orbit. Does it, does it, should it matter where a planet is for its planetary status? I don't think it should matter where it is. I think that if I were setting this in a, a more logical way, I would probably just define some size cutoff for what is a planet. And anything bigger than that's a planet, anything smaller is something else. 
If it orbited the sun, maybe it's an asteroid or a comet. If it orbits some other object, maybe it's a moon. Uh, the problem, of course, with that approach is where do you draw that line? Because no matter where you draw that line, somebody's going to be upset. So if you said, well, anything Ganymede and smaller is a moon, it's not a planet, well, then you've just knocked Mercury out of the planet zone. Uh, on the other hand, if you try and say Mercury are bigger, well, now you're starting to mix apples and oranges because now you're tossing in some stuff that nobody clearly would call a planet under the old historical definition. So, um, you know, even trying to find a size cutoff is going to be controversial. But I think Earth is a planet. There's no doubt about that. We've lived here. We know how diverse a place it is. And if you moved it to the outer solar system, it's still going to be a planet. No matter what else happens, it's still going to be a planet, even if it's got hundreds or thousands of other relatively large objects, Earth-sized objects with it. So the other the other thing people often bring up about Pluto is it appears to be, um, you know, whether you consider it a planet or a dwarf planet or not a planet, regardless of any of those issues, it seems to be a part of a class of a new type of objects that we really weren't familiar with before. Yeah, and that's what makes things very interesting in planetary science because you never know what's around the corner. So... For thousands of years, planets were just points of light in the sky. And then in the last few centuries, we started to realize, hey, we got some really big guys and then some really small guys, Earth being among the smaller ones. So we had now suddenly two classes of planets. And then Pluto came along and it didn't fit either of those two. And now we're finding lots of other objects like Pluto. So are there only three classes of planets? Well, just as we started to say, yeah, they're the icy objects, we started to find some new stuff out beyond Pluto that doesn't quite look like Pluto. So it's always really interesting and really exciting because you never know what the next discovery is going to bring. You never know what new doors it's going to open. And uh, it's just it's a whole lot of fun to explore the solar system that way. And, and, you know, that they came up with this, the IAU came up with this idea that it's a dwarf planet. And the dwarf planet idea, they first they put it out there, well, because it fits two of the three criteria, right? It's, right. It orbits the sun and it's round, but it's not, but it's not, uh, hasn't cleared its orbit. So they came up with this dwarf planet idea. And then there was some kind of push to designate that dwarf planet is a subclass of planet so that it would still be a planet. We'd have the classical planets and the dwarf planets, but, but that, uh, that didn't happen. No. Um, and part of the problem, I think, is they rush to this definition. They rush to judgment. And as a result, they threw in some things into the dwarf planet category that we might not have otherwise put in there. For example, Ceres is the largest asteroid, but it is tiny compared to some of the objects that we have since found in the Kuiper Belt that don't make it into the dwarf planet category. And then... Poor Sharon, and I'm, again, Sharon's biggest advocate, it kind of orbits the sun directly. Its center of mass with Pluto is well outside of Pluto. So to be fair, Pluto and Sharon really should be considered a binary world, which means Sharon kind of orbits the sun, and it's big and round. And so it should fit into that category. And then you got Haumea that's in there that's not even round, so it doesn't fit two of the criteria at all. It only fits one of them. So I think by creating arbitrarily this dwarf planet category, 
we create another mess that we're going to have to fix at some point. Because now, to be a dwarf planet, you basically get tapped on the shoulder and say, I like you, you're a dwarf planet. Um, well, I don't like you, so we're not going to count you. And that's not a really good way to do science or classification of any kind. No, no, it's not very satisfying. So I, I thought we might close by thinking about what are the what are the inter, what is the interesting class of objects to be or to study in the solar system? Is it just planets? Does it matter if an object's not a planet? Oh, absolutely not. In fact, um, if you just talk about the solar system in general, more than ninety nine point eight percent of it belongs into one object, the sun. And stars are very fascinating objects in and of themselves. And then you do have the two different major classes of planets. You have the dwarf planets, but you have all of these moons out there as well. And they're really exciting. You've got Io, which is enormously active, volcanically active. You have a subsurface ocean on Europa. You maybe have a subsurface ocean on Enceladus, which is spitting out particles that are keeping Saturn's ring system alive. So the solar system is absolutely diverse. There's so much going on out there uh, that the whole term planet really kind of, I think now is doing an injustice to things. And that's why I tend to come back to that word world, because it's a little more all encompassing. And it reflects the fact that whether you're a, a classical planet or a star or a moon or an asteroid or a comet, you actually have a lot of unique uh, spirit, a lot of unique features uh, that you bring to the table that make our solar system a very diverse and fun place to explore. Well, I agree with that. Let's end there. Um, thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. I have enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast. I'm Nathan Cohn. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.